You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 19 is where we are this morning in our study of God's Word. Matthew chapter 19, and today in our study of Matthew, we come to the 13th verse. We'll read verses 13 through 15, Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 13. The Word of God says, Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of being together. Thank you for the joy of corporate worship. As we just sang that great invitation, I'm reminded that the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Even in preaching, your church has a function beyond just listening. We're here to listen and learn and take your words into our hearts. But Lord, we also, by a very attentiveness to your word, by our hunger for it, our desire for it, preach a message to those who are outside your Son that we regard your words as the words of life, that we regard your words as the absolute and perfect truth. And so may your church this day glorify you and please you both in the way that your word is proclaimed and in the way that your word is received. Help me today to preach and help us today, Lord, to listen. We do have a great desire to see people reconciled to you See people saved. We ask, as has already been prayed, that, Lord, you would save. But we need your word every day. Your church needs to be washed by the pure water of your word. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word accomplishes everything necessary for our ongoing sanctification and security. There are things that we will hear today that will not just serve us today, but will serve us for the rest of our lives. And so may you take your word and burn it into our minds and hearts in a way that it never leaves us. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we learn to do as we study the Bible is ask good questions. As we read, as we study, we're asking questions. The reason why it's good to do that, the reason why it's necessary to do that is because this is no ordinary book. You and I, we sometimes say things or we behave in ways that really have no rhyme or reason. There's no logic to it. We haven't thought it through at any deep level. There's always a reason for what we say or do, but we're not always conscious of the reason for what we say or do. I'm sure we've all made the statement one time or another, I don't know why I said that, or I don't know why I behaved in that way. But that is never true of God. 
Everything that God says, everything that God has ever done, there is a purpose for it. In fact, there is a perfect purpose that stands behind what He says and what He does. So that when we come to a section like the one we come to this morning, verses 13 through 15, and we ask, why is this here? Why is it located where it's located in the narrative that Matthew is giving us? We know there is a reason. We've just left a section in which Jesus has said some very hard things to accept about marriage and divorce and remarriage. In fact, so hard were these sayings that His own disciples are skeptical. Verse 10, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. There's a measure of unbelief there. There's a measure of shock and skepticism in their words. The next section, the section we'll deal with tonight, verses 16 and following, Jesus meets with a rich young ruler, and again, he has some very hard things to say, some very hard things to accept. In fact, the young man is going to walk away from Jesus, still an unbeliever, grieved. So, why does the Spirit of God, why does Matthew, right in the middle of these two hard sayings, retain for us the record of this meeting that Jesus had with children. Parents bringing their children to Jesus that He would pray for them and bless them. The disciples bothered by the children coming to Jesus. Jesus correcting His disciples about their attitude. I mean, of all the things that God would see fit to retain for us in His Word... I have to admit, just from my own vantage point, I don't think I would have put this high on the list. I don't think that I would have expected... This seems more like travel log to me. But you can be sure it's not travel log. It's important. Remember the last time we saw Jesus illustrating with a child, it was back in chapter 18. Look back there for just a moment. Chapter 18, look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And He called a child to Himself and set Him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Christ using a child to illustrate, to call for humility and carefulness, which has to do with believing Him, believing Christ. Now, having spoken truth, that requires humility and trust, right? What he said about divorce, marriage, divorce, remarriage, this requires humility and complete trust in the Son of God. If you're to receive his sayings, and now on the doorstep of his meeting with a rich young ruler who must humble himself and lose himself in trust to the Son of God if he is to be saved, humility and trust, if you're going to receive the hard sayings of Jesus... As a disciple, 
humility and trust if you're going to receive the hard sayings of Jesus and become a disciple. Right in the middle of this, we're told about Jesus loving children and illustrating with children the kind of humility and trust necessary to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Let the children alone, verse 14, do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think there is our reason for what otherwise might seem like meaningless details. There is meaning in this section. Now, something we need to recognize, what is on display in these verses is not just the wisdom of Jesus, it's the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus. We are reminded, once again, this section serves to remind us, Jesus does not say hard things because He's cruel. He didn't say what He said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage because He's cruel. He doesn't say what He says to the rich young ruler because He's cruel. Rather, in a cruel world, Jesus says things that sometimes seem harsh to us, but they are truly loving. All love is not love. God's love is love. The world is full of hate in the name of love. We live in a world right now where people are being affirmed in what is destroying them. That is not love. God's love is so truthful that sometimes it startles us, but it is so tender that it cherishes children. You see the goodness of Jesus and how He relates to these children. He's not a cruel master. These hard sayings test us. They test the listener. Jesus said at the end of His teaching about divorce and remarriage, not everyone will be able to accept these things. Verse 11, He said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given, which is to draw a distinction between the saved and the lost. Those who will humble themselves and trust the Son of God, even when it messes with what you have already come to believe, even when it calls for you to change your thinking, even when it means you must bow the knee. The believer has been given by the Spirit of God and by virtue of regeneration the ability to submit and to trust and to humble himself or herself right there at the point of the hard sayings of Jesus. Unbelievers won't do that. And so, making use of children, Jesus explains how this is what must be produced in us, this humility and this trust to even enter the kingdom of heaven. People who haven't humbled themselves and trusted in the Son of God, people who don't trust the words of Christ, are people who don't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So that it's not just the character of Christ on display in these verses, His goodness and His wisdom, but the character of a kingdom citizen is on display in this scene. He has chosen a perfect illustration. In fact, I think it's true to say there may be one of the clearest indicators of the difference between righteousness and wickedness is how you regard children. In our own culture, we have seen, haven't we, that when a, when a culture rebels against God, children suffer. Why? Because where there is wickedness, there's 
no tenderness of heart toward the next generation. Abortion, disregard for the purity and the protection of children, the taking advantage of children to advance adult perversions, the indoctrination of children with philosophies and immoral ideologies. Children are suffering in our nation as it's free falling into its sin. What a great illustration of true righteousness, both in how Jesus regards children and in what He recognizes about them. Parents are bringing their children to Jesus for blessing. Mark and Luke use an imperfect verb to indicate that they kept bringing their children. Luke used an imperfect verb to indicate that the disciples kept rebuking. So the children keep coming and the disciples keep rebuking. What are we meant to learn? Why is this here? We'll think about these verses this morning under three headings. Number one, the desire of parents. Number two, the discouragement from disciples. Number three, the, the, the determination of Jesus. The desire of parents, the discouragement from disciples, and then the determination of Jesus. Notice, first of all, the desire of parents, verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Why would parents do this? Why are they bringing their children to Jesus? Well, because it's something that they were taught to do in Jewish tradition. Seek the blessing of faithful rabbis. Meet with a faithful teacher. There's an opportunity to have one more faithful man pray for your children and bless them. John MacArthur comments, the Talmud taught Jewish parents to bring their children to respected rabbis for blessings in prayer. A father would customarily bring his infant child to the synagogue and pray for the child himself. He would then hand it to the elders who would each hold it and pray for God's blessing on the young life. Many churches today follow a somewhat similar pattern in prayerfully dedicating small children to the Lord. That's what these parents are doing. They're bringing their children for blessing. Pideon is the word for children. It refers to an infant child or a very small child. They're bringing their babies. They're bringing their toddlers to him. Luke says they were even bringing their newborns. Luke 18.15, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. Brephos is the word there for babies. Very small child, baby, infant. So there's the picture, parents bringing their little ones to the Lord Jesus because they desire the Lord to bless them, to pray for them, put his hands on them and bless them. Now, most of these people would not have had a complete or accurate view of who Jesus is. Maybe some believe that he was the Messiah and imagine that the privilege of having the Messiah pray for your child, bless your child. But all of these parents coming to the Lord Jesus says something about their view of Jesus, right? There's a belief in the goodness of Jesus, or you wouldn't bring your child to Him. There's a belief in the power of Jesus, or you wouldn't want Him to pray for your child. There's a desire for the blessing of your children. You have concern for the blessing of your child. This does not indicate, however, that all these people were converted. You do know that just by virtue of common grace, God gives parents a natural affection for their children. 
Uh, unless sin has so set in in a, in a person's life or in a culture that it's taken away natural affection, normal parents care about their children, care about their life now, and, and care about their life forever. So just by virtue of natural affection, it's not surprising that parents would have brought their children to Jesus for blessing. But salvation brings more than natural affection. When the Lord saved you and saved me, He imparted to us a unique kind of concern for our children. A God imparted, salvation imparted, Scripture taught awareness of what is most important for our children. A special kind of tenderness of heart toward our offspring, a burden to pray for our children, a burden to instruct them in the truth of the Word of God. We care about nothing more than we care about the eternal destiny of our children. We care about their souls. This is what salvation produces in a human heart. In fact, show me a mom or a dad who cares more about themselves than they care about their children. And I'll show you someone who is either a stranger to the grace of God or they're in a very bad place spiritually. Let me just ask you, do your children have a dad or a mom who shares a concern for their soul? Is it evidenced by your prayer life? Is it evidenced by your efforts in teaching them? Is it evidenced by the example you're living before them? Is it evidenced by your home life? The first thing we see is the desire of these parents. Some saved, probably some lost, most, if not all, not fully understanding who Jesus is, but by virtue of natural affection, and for those who were saved, by virtue of salvation's new desires, they are concerned for their children. And this is why they're bringing them to this one whom they at least perceive to be a faithful rabbi. Some saw him as the Messiah, but they're bringing their children because they desire blessing upon their offspring. Do we desire blessing upon the next generation? Well, how do the disciples respond to this? Second thing we see, the discouragement from disciples. Verse 13, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. They don't like this. And by the way, this is not some mild discouragement. Epitamao is the word to express strong disapproval of someone, to rebuke, to reprove, to censure, to speak seriously, to warn is what the lexicon has. Stop this, is what the disciples were saying. They are genuinely, greatly bothered. Why? Why would disciples of Jesus be rebuking children and by extension their parents for bringing these little ones to Jesus? Now let me give you some reasons that might have explained their discouragement. First of all, the greatness of the person of Jesus. They understand the greatness of their master. The thinking would be, he doesn't need to be bothered by this sort of thing. This is, this is the Lord, and you're bringing your you know, snotty-nosed, dirty, 
little ones and putting them on his lap and asking for him to take his time and pray for your children. Don't you know how great he is? He is above this. He doesn't need this. Another possible explanation would be a belief in the greatness of the mission of Jesus. Now, not just the greatness of his person, but the greatness of his work. That is to say, he has more important things that he's involved with than this. On the scale of what Jesus is about, and we know from our study of Matthew, he is constantly active, constantly busy from morning to night and sometimes into the night or before others arise, there's this constant tug on him. Don't you understand the greatness of his mission? It doesn't include little things like this. He's already exhausting himself in important work. Don't, don't add to that. The greatness of his person, the greatness of his mission. Perhaps another explanation would be the need to protect him. The disciples aware of how Jesus is busy, how he is tugged on, how exhausted he lives his life. Maybe they're thinking to themselves, we need to step in here and guard the Lord's time. Here is one more interruption of his schedule. Let's, let's put a barrier between Jesus and well-meaning but bothersome parents and their children. We have to admit, if we had been with the Lord, maybe we would have thought very similar to that. We know Jesus loves children, but he has, he has very important things he's involved with. He doesn't have time for this, or he's exhausted, he's tired. We don't need one more interruption of his schedule. We might have thought very much like this, but one thing is clear from our verses. They were missing something. The disciples were missing something. And we know they were missing something because Jesus corrects them. In fact, He doesn't just correct them, He commands them. Verse 14, but Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to Me. Stop. Stopping them. Let them come. Don't hinder them. So what were the disciples missing? Well, what they were missing is the heart of Christ. They got something about the person of Christ right, but they were missing the heart of Christ to think He would not want this to happen. And as a result, they're also not grasping the mission of Christ. Because his heart toward these children is illustrative of his mission. If you want to know why Jesus is bothered by the disciples shutting off this access, all you have to do is listen to the explanation of Jesus. He explains himself, verse 14, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Why, Lord? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Because what I see in these children illustrates what God does in human lives when He saves them. What you're seeing with these little ones is what I'm doing in the world. This is why I'm here. I'm on a saving mission. I'm here to populate the kingdom of heaven. And it belongs to such as these. The heart on display in Jesus, the delight on display in Jesus in the natural realm, love for children, illustrates 
his heart and his delight in the realm of salvation, love for spiritual children. Jesus loves children. He delights in the qualities that are natural to them, that reflect common grace and natural revelation. Meet our children in their youngest stages, and you meet with innocence. You meet with humility. None of them believes they have some great outstanding influence in this world. Now, they may think they have great influence in your home, but not in the world. And they, as a pattern, they believe you. Talking now about toddlers, little ones, they believe you. They trust you. They are certainly dependent upon you, and they know they're dependent upon you. What our Lord rejoices in, delights in, in that common grace, natural revelation, the realm of what children are by nature, He loves in spiritual children, things that are like that, childlike qualities that are not natural to us, but they're produced by the grace of God. They're produced by regeneration. They're produced by the new birth. We can say it this way, don't hinder those who are most like the very ones who will belong to me. The reason why their attitude didn't match Jesus' attitude is because they were blind to what he was seeing in that situation. Side note, disciples can still be guilty of this today. That is, we have good-sounding motives. I think the motives of the disciples seem good to them. Might even have good-sounding theological arguments. And yet we're thinking in ways, speaking in ways, behaving in ways that are contrary to the heart of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have His words, but we don't have His mind. We have His words, but we don't have His attitude. We have His words, but we don't have His heart. We have processed the information, but we lack the affections found in Jesus. We have processed the right information, but we've come to the wrong conclusions. And so we have His words, but we don't represent Him. I think about this often. You know, you see a lot in our world from Orthodox believers. I mean, they, they, they have their soteriology right. They have, they have their theology proper correct. They understand who God is. They have their Christology right, pneumatology right. They understand who God is, they understand how sinners are saved, and yet, listen to them. And their spirit, their heart, their way of behaving, sometimes what they say is so unlike Christ. How does that happen? And some of the conclusions they come to in the relational realm, I am absolutely convinced doesn't match the spirit of Scripture. They're using the words, but the way they're applying those words and trying to live out those words doesn't really match the words. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith the goal of our preaching is love in the hearers. 
Love for God, love for others, right? The two great commandments. They were to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. All of God's commands can be summed up in that. Love God with all that you are and love other people. Put them first. Prefer them before yourself. And let this come not from the place of the moralist who is somehow trying to earn his way into God's favor. We'll deal with that tonight. Comes from a pure heart, a purified heart, a redeemed heart. Comes from a good conscience. Comes from a place of sincere faith. If you're teaching the Word of God and that's not your aim, you are distorting the Word of God. Even if you get the words right. That is, you can, you can be formally correct, but formationally in error. What Paul's talking about in that verse is what you're aiming at in the preaching. Oh Lord, would you do your work in the hearts of people so that your character, the fruit of your spirit, is produced in their lives? And that it can all be summed up in love. Not the world's love, your love. So truthful that it startles, but so tender that it loves children. Would you do this in the lives of people? And if that's not your aim, you will get it wrong. Even if you are formally correct, you will have missed the heart of your Savior. When godly love is absent teaching, it will be distorted teaching. So their motives might have been good. I trust they were. Don't you know the greatness of his person? Don't you know the greatness of his mission? Don't you understand how he needs our protection? He's wearing himself out. I'm sure their motives were good, but they had totally missed his heart because he was seeing something in this encounter that spoke of his mission and they weren't grasping it. Don't stop them from coming. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Which gets to the third point. Really, I'm explaining the third point, which is the determination of Jesus. Why does Jesus rebuke these men? Why does He insist on allowing the children to come? It's because He delights in what God forms in those whom He saves, which, is, which are in the supernatural realm, like comparable to what you see in children in the natural realm. Humility, complete trust, dependence, the kind of heart that bows the knee when Jesus says something about marriage that you weren't ready to hear. The kind of heart that bows the knee when Jesus offers you the greatest treasure in all the world for all eternity if you'll just follow me. And a young man will walk away grieved, you see, because he doesn't have that heart of humility and trust. Again, MacArthur was good on this. He says, Jesus was not naively sentimental about children. Having created them, he well knew they are born with a sinful nature. Children have a certain innocence, but they're not sinless. He knew that they did not have to be taught to do wrong, that their little hearts were naturally bent toward evil, but he loved them with a special compassion. And because of their natural openness and trustfulness, he held them up as examples of the attitude required for kingdom citizenship. 
Those who share the mind of Christ share his concern and love for children. No church or Christian movement has prospered spiritually that has disregarded or neglected the care and training of its children. The heart that is warm toward the Lord will inevitably be warm toward children. Close quote, and he's right. That same heart will be warm toward God's children. The reading this morning from the book of 1 John, read the book of 1 John. It's impossible to love the Lord Jesus Christ and not love His church. Spiritual children are humble. Spiritual children are trusting. That is, they have complete trust in the Word of God. Spiritual children recognize their dependence. They are not full of themselves. As we sang about this morning, their boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the qualities found in the people whom the Lord has saved. And I fear that sometimes we don't take that seriously, as seriously as we should, as we think about the spiritual condition of people we love. Think with me this morning about the people you love who claim they are believers and ask yourself, are they characterized by humility are they characterized by complete trust in the words of God, even when the sayings are hard? And are they characterized by self-exaltation or dependence on the Lord? Who are they trusting for their own change of life and for everything else in life? And we had better take seriously that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who in the spiritual realm manifest the kinds of qualities that are comparable to what you see in children in the natural realm. That's not an opinion, you see, about salvation. That is the Savior's truth about what characterizes saved people. So let me ask you as we finish. Do you bear the marks of a child of God? It's not just about examining someone else, is it? In fact, it's not even first and foremostly about examining someone else. It's about examining ourselves. Do you bear the marks of a child of God? Are you like these little children whom Jesus delighted in and laid His hands on and prayed for their blessing? Are you like them? Because He said... People like this, you see, are in the kingdom of heaven. Are you humble? Are you humble? There's not a single person in this room who doesn't battle with pride. You do understand every sin you've ever committed in your entire life has pride in it. Do you understand that? Would you say amen? There is no sin without pride. But there's a difference between being characterized by a proud, stubborn, unteachable attitude and someone who as a pattern can be taught, can be corrected, can be led, can learn. Be honest with yourself. Which characterizes you? And where is your faith? Is it in the words of God? You live in a world that promises answers 
for all sorts of things. Where do you go for your answers? You go to the Scriptures? Do you believe them entirely? Do you understand and believe that the Bible is not just inerrant, it is not just authoritative, it is sufficient for life and godliness? How do you live life? How do you live a godly life? The Bible is enough to produce that in your life. The Bible by itself. Not the Word of God mixed with philosophies. Not the Word of God mixed with worldly ideologies. Not the Word of God mixed with your opinions and the opinions of others. The Bible. Is that where you go? Like a child. Do you just trust, simply and straightforwardly trust the words of God? I would rather have someone who lacks a high school education and believes every word of Scripture in my life and in this church than to have a Ph.D. who thinks they're smarter than the Bible and need to inform us as to what they think that conflicts with what God said. Are you humble? Are you trusting? You know, one of the ways this is tested, the hard sayings of Jesus. When His Word comes face to face with how you have chosen to live, will you bow the knee? Easy to say, I believe the Lord has produced humility in me and belief in His Word. Okay. But now what about this situation? This one. I mean, now we're not in the realm of the theoretical. Now we're in the realm of reality. And here is what the Bible says, and here is how you've been thinking, speaking, and behaving. Will you bow your knee right there? Will you walk in what the world will refuse to walk in? You see that we're going to see tonight. There's a rich young man who's going to walk away. He won't, he won't do what Jesus says. And when it comes to what you're trusting for eternal life, have you rested your entire case on Christ Himself? If Jesus saves sinners, then I am saved. If He doesn't save sinners, then I'm lost because I have no other hope but Him. He lived for me. He died for me. He was raised for me. He has taken hold of me. He has granted me repentance and faith in Him. And there is my answer. If you ask me, Richard, what hope do you have of eternal life? My answer is Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection, His person. Is He your hope? One writer says this, there is nothing in the text to indicate that as some claim Jesus was isolating these supposedly elect children from others who were non-elect. Furthermore, He makes no mention of baptism, parental covenant, parental faith, or ecclesiastical rite, nor does He mention personal faith on the part of the children who were probably too young to have exercised such belief. The Lord was simply saying that those children, representative of all children, were a picture of the humility, dependency, and trust of those of any age who enter His kingdom. Maybe there's someone listening to me this morning. The Lord has been confronting you with this now for some time. Maybe you're like that rich young man we'll see tonight. You're troubled 
there is unrest in your soul because you know something is not right. But what stands between you and Jesus is total surrender. The humility and the trust that says, I give up and deliver myself into your hands. Take my small life and make of it whatever you want. I will follow you. Your death is enough to pay for all my sins. Your life is the answer for all my need. Your righteousness will clothe me and make me acceptable to holy God forever. I give you me. If you have not said that to the Lord Jesus, so may you say that to Him this day and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this lesson that is sandwiched right in the middle of two scenes that manifest the need for these qualities. Hard sayings about a very sensitive, tender part of life, marriage, and a hard saying about salvation. And, and the need in both cases is just to bow our hearts and our knees to You and, and say, yes, Lord. I thank You that Your people have that capacity. I thank You that we have that capacity not because of nature, but because of new birth. That this is what will characterize us. Lord, we recognize we struggle with pride and we recognize that we struggle with unbelief and we recognize that we struggle with self-dependence. There's not a person in this room who doesn't battle with that. But Lord, You, as we sang about this morning, You wrestle us to the ground. You take hold of us in a way that doesn't leave us there. And so where we have been battling with ourselves, may we yield this moment, this day, this hour, and may you do your good work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.